Good morning. If I uh, haven't a chance to meet, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here. And uh, um, confession, you know, there's actually more people here than I expected um, with the marathon. We actually have a, a lot of people running the marathon, a lot of families and, and spouses who are supporting them, and and then with traffic and stuff. Um, so I feel a little a little unprepared today because I was going to keep it pretty casual, you know, just have like a nice nice small group discussion and. Uh, um, so, uh, so if, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. We're, we're studying Micah right now, and one of the things I, I really want to talk about is, is, as Alyssa kind of is inviting us into this time of worship, uh, what does it mean to experience God? And one of the things that I've really uh, noticed as I've begun to, um, some conversations that I've had with people in our community, I've realized that, that a lot of, um, maybe not a lot, but some, a high percentage of people I've been talking to have felt this sense that, like, I've, uh, I'm, I'm doing what I know I should be doing. Like, I'm, I know there's things that Christians should do, and I'm doing those things. But I, I don't, like, I'm not sure that I've, like, heard the voice of God. Or, like, I'm not sure that I am experiencing God, like, in a real way. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. I'd like to continue for you to reflect on how you've experienced God. And um, let me just say that... Uh, um, if, if something comes to mind, you're like, oh my gosh, that's how I've experienced God. Um, I just remembered. I just remember this way that it was really profound way that I experienced God. Um, make some sort of signal to me, and I'll, I'll invite you to share it if, if, if you feel. Don't make a signal if you don't want to share it. Um, uh, we got a new cord, so that wouldn't happen. So that's discouraging. Yeah. We just experienced. Um, but no, seriously, if, if you're like, you know, like, no, this is, I've experienced God, and, and, and I, I think for those who haven't recently, this would be encouraging to them. So just, yeah, raise your hand or whatever, and then we'll pause where we're, where we're going, and, and we'll have you, you share. So I just that's an open invitation. That's the invitation for today's worship. It's an invitation really every Sunday, but it's specifically this Sunday. Um, we want to hear how God's working in your life, um, and I want to give you plenty of time to do that. So no pressure, but if the Spirit leads you, let me know, and uh, uh, we even, we'll even give you a mic if that's okay. Um, so I want to spend some time talking about how we experience God. And um, I want to do it in a, in a kind of a strange sort of way. Um, there's really kind of almost two sides to God, especially in the Old Testament, still very true in the New Testament. And I think in our culture, we tend to lean towards one side versus the other. And so there's this sense that God is very loving and merciful and kind. And when we talk about experiencing God, isn't that what we're hungry for? This loving and kind and merciful and long-suffering and always forgiving God. But, but if you've studied scripture at all, then you know that there's also this like really angry picture of God that brings judgment and um, brings fire and wrath, and, and, and when we are like, oh, God, I just wish I could experience you, we're not usually thinking of that, <laughs> unless we have some mass, you know, people who like pain, we're not usually thinking of that, that side. Well, we're really only looking at three verses today in Micah. We covered most of four and five last week, um, but we left out a, a chunk in the middle of chapter five. Alyssa's going to cover chapter six next week, and we're going to finish with chapter seven the week after. Um, so I just have a couple of verses, and as I've been reflecting on these verses, as we work through every verse in Micah, that's the goal in this series, um, this is what came to mind, these two sides to God. So we'll look at that, and then we'll see what the conversation happens as a result. So Micah chapter 5, we're going to look at specifically verses 7, 8, and 9. 
Micah 5, 7, 8, and 9. Um, it's talking about the remnant of Jacob. This is right after he says that the, the leader will be born in Bethlehem and that, that he'll make things right and that he will be our peace. And we read some of that in the call to worship. He'll be a shepherd and he'll be our peace. And it's this beautiful thing. And then you've got this little aside and commentators aren't even really sure what to do with it because it kind of departs from the trajectory that you're expecting um, in this particular proclamation. So it's 7, 8, 9. I'll read it and then we'll talk about it. It says this. It's not on the screen this week. So if you don't have a Bible or your phone out, uh, just listen. It says, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. In other words, the remnant of Jacob is going to be spread out amongst the nations. He says, like a dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man and, and nor linger for mankind. Now, in a, in a tra traditionally arid climate, what he's saying here is like the people of Israel are going to be out amongst the nations. They're going to be like dew and they're going to be like rain. And those are good things specifically in an arid environment. So they're a sign of blessing. It's a metaphor for that the people will be like water on the earth that gives life. It's this good thing. That's how the people of Israel meant to be this good thing. And, and that's what we see, right? That's part of the, the characteristics of God, love and kindness and blessing and good and all of that. But then he goes on, verse 8. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many people, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue it. Your hand will be lifted up and triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. So on the one hand, the people of Israel are going to be like dew and rain, and it's going to give life. We talked about agriculture last week, right? And it's a sweet. Did, did, did they, has, have people been watering their grass, you know, make encourage it to grow if we planted some seeds i would encourage water is is essential for life that is the thing the people are gonna be like water and they're gonna it's gonna be produce life but they're also gonna be like a lion that just kills people randomly and there's nothing you can do about it right so uh, he's talking about the people of israel but he's really talking about god and we get this picture of god this loving life-giving god but then also this god that is compared to like a lion that kills and destroys and steals. I want to wrestle with that. I, I want to say that, give the ending away, we're going to end with, with saying that God is love. That's where we're headed. But I think we jump there too quickly. Um, I think we need to wrestle with the fact that God is love, but what do we do when we see God as angry, as judging, as dangerous, as these other things as well. So we're going to sit there for a little bit, but we will end with this idea that God is love. I want to think about it in a couple different ways. Here's one of the ways. I, I, I've noticed that there's kind of like two problems that people have with God and, and with the church. Two problems that kind of make them like wrestle, like I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to be a part of a church because there's lots of reasons for that, but there's two that I think are related and also I find very interesting. And here's the two problems. Here's the first. One of the great problems that keeps a lot of people from believing in God, it's a, it's a classic old thought exercise, but it's that people can't believe in a loving God who allows bad things to happen. Have you heard this before? It's a pretty standard reason. Like, how can God be all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving? How is that possible? Because, because either God isn't all-loving or he's not all-powerful or he's not all-knowing. There has to be some sort of breakdown because when you look at the world, there's suffering in the world. So how can God be all this? So how is that possible? Why is that so? If God is so good and so powerful, why doesn't he stop people from hurting other people? 
Now, rooted in this, I think, is, is this idea of this really deep longing, this simple longing that runs deep in our hearts, and it's we want justice. We, we want things to be made right. We talked a lot about this last week, and I noticed it resonated with a lot of people. We look at the broken world that we live in, and we want, we want things to be made. And, and what we call that is we want evil to stop. We want people to, to stop suffering. We want people to stop hurting other people. We want justice. We want to make things right, to set things right. We want this justice, and if God is real, why doesn't God bring justice to the earth? Why wouldn't God stop the chaos and the brokenness in the world? Justice. It's a buzzword today amongst Christians. It's one of the reasons why we are studying Micah, because Micah 6, 8 kept showing up on these memes. You know, act justly and love mercy. Walk humbly. Act justly. It's like, yes, that's what we need. So that's the first problem. Where's God when there's no justice for the vulnerable? Right? Honest question. Here's the second problem that people have with God and with the church. When surveys are done on why people leave the church or don't want to do anything um, with Christianity, one of the common themes in America specifically, and maybe other countries, but I know for a fact in America, they feel that Christians are too judgmental. Um, people feel judged. Um, and that's fair. I think Christians are, um, can be very judgmental, and I don't think that's good. But there's something deeper here. At the root of this is a very common and universal feeling. We don't like to be told when we're wrong, do we? Or is there someone here that enjoys that? <laughs> okay, just checking. Maybe someone wants to raise their hand. Let me tell you an experience I have with God and why I love being told I'm wrong. Uh, we don't. We don't want our mistakes or our failures pointed out, and we don't really want to be told what we're doing is wrong or how we're living is wrong, and we don't. And to each his own, and what is right for you isn't necessarily right for me, and who are you to tell me how to behave? I mean, these are the types of things that we hear. And so who are you to say what's right and wrong or what's right, and who are you to speak for everyone? It's just judgment, and, and we don't like judgment. We don't want to be judged. I don't want to be judged. You don't want to be judged. I just I don't, wanna, I don't even really want to be held accountable if I'm honest. So judgment, no thanks. I do want justice, okay, but I don't want judgment. So justice, yes, yes, because justice is something that involves other people. <laughs> but no judgment, because judgment always involves me, doesn't it? I want to pause there for a second. On the one hand, we're not sure we can believe in a God who allows evil and suffering. On the other hand, we're not sure we want to believe in a God who tells us some things in life are wrong. Right. On the one hand, we want justice. If there's a God, we want God to come and we want God to make things right. On the other hand, we don't want judgment. If there's a God, I hope God doesn't judge us or judge me. Does anyone see something a little off here? What, what if I told you that you can't have justice without judgment? What if I told you, I took it one step further and said judgment and justice are actually the same thing? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, mostly in Hebrew, a few other languages incorporated. And in the Old Testament and in Micah specifically, the book that we're studying, it talks a lot about justice, and it talks a little bit about judging. And here's the thing you need to realize. The Hebrew word for justice is the same Hebrew word as judgment. We just choose different English words at different times. And it comes up often, and sometimes the English translators will use justice, like 
act justly and love mercy and walk humbly, that act justly is rooted in the word judgment. A loving God brings justice. A loving God would make things right, but we almost want to say that an angry God brings judgment. And yet these Hebrew words, they, they didn't under, the Hebrew, they didn't understand these things as so drastically different. A loving God brings judgment because an angry God wants to make things right. So there's these two sides that, of God that we wrestle with, but they're actually really similar to one another. And yet we struggle with this because we don't want to recognize that saying that God is going to make things right means that God has to say some things are wrong and then hold people accountable. So this is the world that we're wrestling between these two sides of God, and we see that in Micah. I want to share with you, I'm going to do something really uh, um, uh, risky today. I'm pulling out all the stops and teaching completely different today um, because of the marathon. I'm using that as an excuse. Um, I want to share with you a poem. It's by one of my favorite poets. His name's Aaron Weiss. He's, he, he probably doesn't refer to him as himself as a poet. He's a rock star. I mean, he's, he's in a rock band, but he's a poet. And he writes these poems um, that he yells to loud music. Um, very great band, Me Without You. Anyone know Me Without You besides me and like three other people? Yeah, 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 three other people. Very niche band. Um, but he writes this poem that kind of paints this picture that, that has really challenged me around understanding God. Because I think we jump to the loving and the kind God too quickly. And this one really forces us. Maybe God isn't as safe as, as we think. Um, or or in, in the story of Narnia, uh, when it's talking about how Aslan, this God-like Jesus character, is a lion. And the one girl's like, oh, I don't know if I'd feel safe around a lion. And they're like, well, no, he's not safe. But he's good. And it's this idea that God is actually dangerous. And C.S. Lewis has some really... Um, great uh, theology around that, um, that I think we've lost. I mean, we want God to be safe and kind. And I wonder if maybe we're not experiencing God because we don't realize how dangerous and difficult he is. So this, this poem, he writes this uh, story um, I'm going to read to you uh, about a beetle and from the perspective of a beetle. Yeah, this is very weird. And I'm going to read the whole poem to you, so my apologies. Um, <laughs> just treat it like a marathon, you know, like you can get through it. And it's the story of the beetle, and the beetle um, is on this coconut estate, and, um, and what they do is they, th these humans, these workers, are gathering up all of the debris on the coconut estate, and they're burning it. And they do this every so often, and the beetle's looking at the fire, trying to figure out what the fire is. And it becomes this really kind of really interesting metaphor for us humans trying to figure out who God is. Um, and, and this poem might disturb you a little bit, and that's partly why I'm going to read it. So here, here, it's called The King Beetle on the Coconut Estate. It says this. As the moon rose and the hour grew late, the day help on the coconut estate raked up the dry leaves that fell dead from the trees, which they burned in a pile by the lake. So the beetle king summoned his men from the top of the rhododendron stem, calling all volunteers who can carry back here the great mysteries been lit once again. One beetle emerged from the crowd in a fashionable album shroud, said, I'm a professor, you see, that's no mystery to me. I'll be back soon, successful and proud. But when the beetle professor returned, he crawled on all six as his wings had been burned and described to the finest detail all he'd learned. There was neither light nor heat in his words. So the deeply dissatisfied king climbed the same stem to announce the same thing, but in his second appeal sought to sweeten the deal with a silver padparashat ring. 
the lieutenant stepped out from the line as he lassoed his thorax with twine, thinking, I'm stronger and braver, I'll earn the king's favor. One day all he has will be mine. But for all the lieutenant's conceit, he too returned singed and admitting defeat. I had no choice, please believe, but retreat. It was as bright as the sun, but with ten times the heat, and it cracked like the thunder and bloodshot my eyes, though smothered with sticks, it advanced undeterred, carelessly cast on an ash cloud to the sky, my lord, like a flock of dark vanishing birds. The beetle king slammed down his fist. Your flowery descriptions know better than his. We sent for the great light, and you bring us this? We didn't ask what it seems like. We asked what it is. His majesty's hour at last had drawn nigh. The elegant queen took her leave from his side without understanding, but without asking why, gathered their kids to come bid their goodbyes. And the father explained, you've been somewhat deceived. We've all called me your dad, but your true dad's not me. I lay next to your mom and your forms were conceived. Your father is the life within all that you see. He fills up the ponds when he empties the clouds and he holds without hands and he speaks without sounds, provides us with the cow's waste and coconuts to eat, giving one that nice salt taste and the other a sweet. He sends the black carriage of the day death shows its face, sending our numbers with kindness and grace. And just as a flower and its fragrance are one, so much each of you and your father become. Now distribute the scepter, my crown, and my throne, and all we've known as wealth to the poor and alone. Without, hes without further hesitation, without looking back home, the king flew headlong into the blazing unknown. And as the smoke king hurled higher and higher, the troops flying loops around the telephone wires, they said, our beloved's not dead, but his highness instead has been utterly changed into fire. Why not be utterly changed into fire? reading some Reddit threads on this particular song. And it's an interesting conversation. Here's this king beetle, and he sees this fire. The professor goes to study it, but the king's not satisfied. I think, I think sometimes that's how our relationship with God is, isn't it? A as a professor studying something that's over here, and we just we learn things about it. The lieutenant's going to conquer it, but the lieutenant can't conquer it because it's this blazing fire that's much bigger and more powerful than the lieutenant so it comes back singed and defeated and the king decides in this sort of like hopeless abandon he says the only way that i can really understand this fire is to be consumed by it which is the most disturbing part of the story but fire is actually a really interesting metaphor for god because there is this sense that all of life stems from some sort of combustion, whether it be, uh, um, uh, I've been, uh, you know, we've got our furnace back on. Anyone holding out to not turn their furnace back on? Any? Good job, man. Ever, ever, I, we got it on like weeks ago. Uh, we do not like being cold, and uh, we live in a, a not a drafty, but it's an old house, not well insulated, so we've got it on, and and, and so we're like, we're checking the filters and stuff, and, a and ours is a gas furnace, and it's pretty simple, simple little system. You know, there's, there's fire that, that is burning in our house, and it, it, the, the air passes through it, and it goes into our yard, and so into our house. And so what happens is on a, when it's particularly cold or we don't have, like, good socks on or whatever, like, we have these old registers that aren't, like, on the wall. They're, like, a little bit off the wall, and they're big square, and so you can stand on them, and the hot air comes up. It's wonderful. 
And there's a sense that, like, that, that is, like, a really beautiful picture of God. Like, God's warmth and God's, like, he wraps us around. And it's nice. It's wonderful. But that heat is actually caused by fire. Now, the worst place to be in our house would be inside the furnace, wouldn't it? Like, you don't want to go in the furnace. And so there's this sense, like, in the Old Testament especially, God is this consuming fire, and we need the warmth and the life. Like, you even think about solar power or the plants that we eat or the animals we eat that eat the plants. It's all coming from the sun. And so it's all some form of combustion is producing the basic necessities of life. And we need that in order to live, but if you get too close to it, you will be consumed, which is why God is often compared to fire. You have this warmth, this goodness, this love, but if left too close or to be utterly consumed, it's not good. So a little flame like this is fine until you get too close. What does that tell us about God? That God is loving God is dangerous. We would like to think that in the New Testament this has changed. It hasn't. Hebrews is a really interesting book that talks about this. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read a, a verse. You see these two pictures of God once again. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 26 to 31. You can follow along. It won't be on the screen, but you can follow along if you want to or just listen. He says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that was sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord said, the Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31 says this really inspirational verse that you'll see on a lot of like kitchens and living rooms. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Very inspirational verse in there. Do you know that was in the, that's in the New Testament. This isn't Old Testament, friends. This is Hebrews. Very much New Testament. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's like, I'm not sure I want to experience God, right? <laughs> a dreadful thing? Earlier in Hebrews, the author says this. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we, have not have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence where we'll be consumed. What a dreadful thing to find ourselves in the hands of God. Do you, see, do you feel the tension? I, uh, I know that in, in my life that a lot of people um, have not been able to get past the feeling of judgment. Uh, that they felt from the church, that they felt has come from people. And, and I have to say that that breaks my heart. Because even though God is this powerful, 
dangerous thing that, that is so much bigger than we can understand. There has been made a way that when he says in Hebrews that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, we can. Because Jesus is our high priest, because Jesus came and lived. John 1 says this, it says, though um, him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness and to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone has come to the world. And he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. very basic teaching of our faith is that God wants to make all things right. But we've all done things wrong. So how does God make all things right without destroying us in the process? That was the plan with the flood, right? We'll just wipe the, we'll just kill everyone. The, the, the humans are the problem. We'll let a few go because we think they're righteous. Turns out they weren't. My friend in college, and I probably said this before, he's like, the, the, the mistake God made with the flood is he let a few humans, you know, survive. Because they just end up messing it up again. So we want justice. We want God to come make things right. But we have to, if you really think about it, that means that, that like, there are some things that have to change, and there's some things that have to be put away with. And, and, so, and so how do we make things right when humans are, by definition, part of the problem? Now, I understand the way in which you think. It's like, I'm sure it's other humans, not you. It's the other political party of your choice. It's the other neighbors. It's not, I'm not the problem. It's other people. But how can, God, how can we cry for justice when, when we really realize that justice is judgment and that that's the problem in the Old Testament? And here, here was God's solution. The light would come. The fire would burn. God would take on flesh. God would judge. Most of what Jesus did in the Gospels was, was judgment. It was this beautiful Jesus form of judgment. Judging literally means to make a decision about what is right and wrong. And Jesus made these really great decisions about what is right and wrong. He said, you've heard it said to love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies. He's making the judgment call about what it means to live in this world. But then he went on and he died. Was buried and then rose again. And something beautiful and mysterious and profound happened where the love of God and the anger of God and the justice of God and the judgment of God and the presence of God wrapped up in a human being who suffered and died though had done nothing wrong and something happened where all of a sudden we could 
in fact, approach God with confidence. Not a different God. Not a less dangerous God. Jesus just provided the way. I want to encourage you that if you're here today and you feel like you're not sure what it means to um, accept the way that Jesus has offered, um, if you feel like you haven't been experiencing God, I, I want to say this, um, that we can trust that through the person, life, death, resurrection, in this mysterious, beautiful way, that through Jesus, we have access to this God, that we can enter the fire, so to speak, and not be consumed, that we can know God personally. And I honestly believe that that God wants to know you, that God wants to say something to you. I want to give us some time to, um, to pray and to listen. I want to invite the band to come up, and we'll sing our final song in just a few moments. But I want to invite you into a time of approaching God's throne with confidence, knowing that God wants to be near you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, when you first fell on the people of God, you appeared above them like tongues on fire. The scriptures compare you to an all-consuming fire. Lord, you also teach us that love, perfect love, casts out fear. Lord, we have every reason to be afraid of you. And yet we do not have to be. Because you love us perfectly. Lord, sometimes we find ourselves like the prodigal son. who are sitting in our own mistakes so far away from you and from your family and we feel as if we have nothing to live for and we think of you and we think well at least I could be your slave I could be your servant I could go back we assume the worst and yet we know from this story this picture of what your love means that when we return no matter what we've done, no matter where we've gone, that it's only moments after seeing the son that the father begins to run and embrace him, welcoming him back as a full member. Lord, we know that your anger is only because you care, that you're compassionate and merciful and that you, you hate to see bad things happen in this world. love is what endures forever. That there are new mercies every morning. Your forgiveness is never ending. Lord, we confess those sins now in our hearts. Those things that have kept us from knowing you. We name them before you. 
know that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I encourage you to continue to pray as you feel led. I'm going to invite the band to lead us in our closing song. And for those who wish, you can stand and sing with us.